Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Karenkov. I finished my PhD at Stanford, focused on machine learning AI earlier this year, and I now work at a generative AI startup. And I'm your other host, Jeremy Harris. I'm coming at you with a bit of a cold, which is why my voice sounds like a silky smooth baritone. Um, and anyway, so yeah, uh, happy to be here. Of course, I'm the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company. And I just want to mention a couple things uh, in addition to my usual blurb. Uh, so I just want to do a quick shout out to uh, Darren McKee, uh, a guy I know who just wrote a book called Uncontrollable, The Threat of Artificial Super intelligence and the race to save the world. Uh, you can check that out on Amazon.ca uh, uh, in particular, um, and I think it's available basically around the world. Max Tegmark has read this book and he likes it. He says, "I found this a captivating, balanced, and remarkably up-to-date book on the most important issue of our time." So check that out, especially if you're interested in the kind of AI policy dimension of the stuff. We are joined today by two very—I was going to say—very handsome people. I guess you can't tell. You can't tell. They look down handsome. Now, Please now. go on. Please go on. You did fake your eyelid, Jeremy. But okay. I, I, why I said handsome. I have, Give I have the audio listeners a treat. Describe us in detail, yeah. like GPTV would. Don't leave out any single well, detail. Listen, Kevin. As a large language model deployed by OpenAI, I can't. Right. So, and then we'll leave it to these guys to introduce themselves. We've got Kevin. We've got Gavin. Guys, please go ahead and sound as handsome as you possibly can. Please don't make a liar of me. I'll leap in with my credentials first. I'm Kevin Pereira. I am Academy of Art dropout. I didn't even make it halfway into my first semester. Uh, so listen to nothing that I say. I don't have a cold. I just sound like a kazoo duct taped to a moped exhaust. That's my voice. That's how it sounds. But it's a delight to be here. I am one half of the AI for Humans podcast team. And uh, when my wonder twin powers combine with Gavin, who you're going to meet in three seconds, we make content. That's right. My name is Gavin Purcell. I have known Kevin for a long time. The two of us worked at uh, G4 TV way back in the day uh, on Attack of the Show. And I went on to work on The Tonight Show and with Jimmy Fallon and a bunch of other things and now have been obsessed with AI, generative AI for about the last year and a half. Kevin and I have been jamming out a bunch of things since that time and really kind of like folded into AI for Humans, which is our podcast, our video podcast, kind of a, a TikTok channel, all the all the content platforms. About six months ago, we got pretty serious about it. And we're so psyched to be here because this is one of the OG AI podcasts, which is awesome. Like, I love the idea that like you all have been around for as long as you have, because like this means you were doing it pre-hype, which is, you know, we are the post-hype podcast. You are the pre-hype podcast, which is a really awesome thing to see. So we're psyched to be here. Dude, the newsletter is now over five years old. It's going to go to elementary school soon. So, <laughs> and the <laughs> podcast yeah, yeah. Is, is also getting up there. And, you know, uh, yeah, so this is another little uh, podcast, AI podcast crossover episode. We've done one of these before. It was fun. And... I think this will be fun. I'm, I actually enjoy the AI for Humans podcast quite a bit because, and this is kind of a big deal because I don't enjoy podcasts about AI in general. I have enough AI in my life as is. But yeah, AI for Humans is a lot of fun, I think, uh, because there's more of an emphasis on what you can do with AI. There's a lot of demos and kind of example demonstrations. You have an AI co-host, which I am a big fan of, and you have like AI-generated songs and various bits like that. 
So for listeners who are more interested in the tooling side of AI in sort of a practical, what can I do with AI? Uh, what should I try out? I think you might find it quite interesting. Yeah, we do a deep dive on what like really, I wouldn't say normal people, more like kind of uh, AI enthusiasts. Like I think if you're all, if you all are on the kind of like the machine learning, you know, smart person side, we're on the side of like, there's a lot of people that want to kind of explore and do stuff with it. That's where we kind of fit. Um, and I, what I love about your podcast is how deep you go on the news, because I whenever I listen to this podcast, I get so informed. It's really useful to me. So I appreciate what you all do. I think it's it's been great to kind of, uh, it's great to be here for sure. And before we dive in to the news, let us do our quick ad. As we've been doing for a little while now, we are sponsored by the Super Data Science Podcast, another AI podcast we are fans of and a podcast we have done a crossover with. Hosted by Joan Crone, who is the chief data scientist and co-founder of machine learning company Nebulia and the author of Deep Learning Illustrated. He has been on the podcast, and if you've listened, you know that he is very knowledgeable. He is on the interview front as far as podcasts go, so you have a perfect trifecta if you listen to all three of us uh, as far as being an AI expert. And beyond AI, you can also, of course, learn about data science, uh, data careers, a lot of more practical things uh, that is not about the latest research, but uh, more about what do people do? with AI out there, you know, what are actual humans AI beside people hosting and making podcasts about AI, which I imagine is something you might find interesting. So uh, do check it out. It's it's a huge podcast. There are 700 episodes. You can always find whatever you're interested in. And you might be interested in listening to uh, Jeremy's interviews on that podcast, of which there are, I think, uh, a couple. Mm. Mm. How about that? How about that? <laughs> All righty, with that intro out of the way, let us dig into the news, starting with our first section, tools and apps. The first story is OpenAI rival Anthropic makes its cloud chatbot even more useful. So we've mentioned Anthropic a lot. If you've been listening, it's basically the main competitor to OpenAI as far as offering something like ChatGPT in terms of capabilities, in terms of uh, the API support for uh, companies. And as the storyteller says, now they've released the latest version of its chatbot, Claude 2.1. It's pretty impressive. Uh, it can now take in a huge amount of input, uh, 20, uh, 200,000 tokens, which is like, I don't know, all of Harry Potter twice or whatever you might want to say. Um, well, maybe not uh, one Harry Potter book, one of the later Harry Potter books. Let's go with that. Uh, and it um, is much better. So it lies half as often, which is probably good, and has various nifty features like custom persistent instructions. And I think Claude is pretty easy to get access now. It might actually be public access. So if you want to try it out uh, as an alternative to ChatGPT, now is a good time. Yeah, it's said to threaten your mother almost a quarter less than the previous version. Uh, a, no, sorry. Um, yeah, this is this is actually, uh, by the way, uh, one of the key ways in which Anthropic seems to be differentiating itself from GPT-4 and the kind of OpenAI series, the GPT series. You know, we're seeing consistently slightly longer context windows coming from Anthropic than OpenAI, right? So OpenAI previously at 32,000, Anthropic stepped it up to around 128K, and now Anthropic's going to 200K, 
guess what? OpenAI has just followed up with their own 128K context window for GPT-4. So yeah, we're kind of climbing the rungs of the ladder here. I think one of the big significant things is when you think about context windows, you think about the number of documents that can simultaneously be understood by these systems. And Anthropic here shows some really cool examples where you, you, know, you upload a bunch of PDF files and ask it questions about financial data. And this thing can hold the context of I don't want to say your entire company, but like maybe we're kind of getting there. Um, so anyway, these these context window increases are that yes, they are incremental, but you can really see them translate into business value pretty significantly. And uh, Gavin Newsom, one thing I, I liked quite a lot about your podcast, uh, some episodes you've had these competitions between chatbots. You've pitted Bard, which let's say didn't do great against uh, Claude and, and GPT. So uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and yeah, from what I heard on your podcast, it seems like Claude actually is quite good. So there's an interesting thing about Claude that we actually just discovered last week for us, which is kind of disappointing. I will say Claude, I think all along the way, and I won't speak for Kevin, he can chime in here, but like has been a really successful um, overall generative AI product. And, and we've done a lot of interesting stuff with it. Just last week, we had a, we had an episode, we had a Thanksgiving episode where we sat around the table with a bunch of our AI co-hosts, and we found that Claude will no longer let you role play at all. Like it will not do a role play. And I think what's going on here is that Claude, <laughs> to its name, which is probably the worst, most boring name of anybody. If you meet a Claude in life and you shake that Claude's hand, his hand is going to be limp as hell. You're like you're not going to get to know. Don't him, but stain he, my tweed jacket. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm going to put down my pipe and shake your hand, but... This yeah. is not the official position of Last Week in AI. <laughs> no, sorry, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. This is the guess. I, I, one of the interesting things is Claude is trying to be like the grown-ups AI in some ways. And what we found is it's really a bummer. Like we went into this experience and Claude was always pretty good. When we did those competitions, Claude was a great debater. We had a debate where the Claude was a debater and not being able to do that felt like we were a, a giant chunk of something interesting from the AI model was pulled out. And that, that was disappointing to us. But that said, you know, Claude, I know they're very big on AI safety. I know that's what, um, What's the name of the guy who runs Claude uh, or the, the guy that broke away from OpenAI? Do you guys know what his name is? Dario Modi. Dario. So Dario is really fascinating. I love watching interviews and listening to do interviews. He clearly has a good head on his shoulders. But from our perspective, it was a real disappointing moment just last week. They really That really showcases that trade-off right between how um, creative you want the system to be, how human-like, and then how truthful and how grounded. They're, they're, it feels like you're, you're kind of, it's not zero-sum quite, but, but there's a lot of friction there, right? This happens often with these products, and we we try to we cover it in our own little way on our cast. Is that they they giveth and then they quickly taketh away, and there's nothing more frustrating than knowing that you're dealing with like a piece of software that has a capability and is refusing to give it to you now. Somewhat it, it, to the end user, it seems almost arbitrary. There's sometimes where we've we've given the same prompts even to OpenAI systems, and on a Monday night, it refuses to give us an output, and then randomly on a Thursday afternoon, that same prompt generates a character that says things that I know Sam Altman would blush over. And there doesn't seem to be communication uh, with the end user about why it's happening or how it's happening. And it's just really frustrating as an end user to go, hey, I know you have this capability and you're holding back on me. And, and Claude was a, was, a, was a big disappointment for us recently because it was having so much promise. And we love the long context window. We loved its ability to render characters. And so to have them pull back on that is understanding for their mission yes. and their stated goal, but frustrating for us as the silly content creators. 
Makes sense, yeah. And uh, yeah, it is interesting, actually, that note of it not role-playing. It probably goes in hand-in-hand hand with this uh, touted feature of hallucinating half as often, probably, mm -hmm. I would imagine. It's just unable to come up with, you know, theoretical role-play scenarios. Maybe that helps with the AI alignment aspect, uh, mm -hmm. which is not something I've seen necessarily research on. So that I also love the notion of like grabbing Claude off the shelf and there's a sticker on the box that says like new and improved now lies half as much. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. oh, great. I guess I'll swipe right on this AI. <laughs> yeah. For the record, like they still say hallucinate or lie in the new story, but uh, <laughs> yeah, same, same. Yeah. And on to the next story, Stability AI debuts stable video division models in research preview. So Stability AI is one of the big text-to-image uh, generation tools out there, one of the big startups of billions of dollars has been active for quite a while and has released quite a few models uh, along the way. And now they are not just producing images, they are producing videos. Uh, as the title says, this is a video generation model. They have released it uh, for research purposes only for now. Yeah, just starting here. So they are inviting open investigations into the models. Uh, apparently, they actually provide the codes, uh, code and weights for the model on their GitHub. And they are quite open source uh, historically, so this makes sense. So as we've been talking in recent months, it seems that uh, video generation is really kind of progressing along a bit quietly, a bit under the radar, but it's it's really getting to a point where it's almost now realistic as opposed to just crazy looking, which was the case like six months ago. Yeah. And this seems to be based on as well an input, uh, an input image rather than just like text to video. So it's like input image to video and it's a pretty short clip. So you're seeing the sort of like training wheels still very much on these video generation models. And I think part of this is also just a, a funding question. Like ultimately, if you're going to do this well, if you're going to generate long form videos, you're going to need massive scale just because of the expressivity of video content and mapping it to text, just really, really challenging, requires a lot of deep semantic understanding. So this is one of the things, I mean, there's the, the running kind of Jeremy traveling circus show where he tells everybody like, the small companies are gonna die, everybody's gonna die. Um, uh, I, I think stable diffu uh, sorry, stability AI is probably gonna struggle with funding to compete with you know the multimodal systems we'll be seeing coming from Google and OpenAI in the pretty near future. Uh, but as an open source thing, this is definitely kind of cool and I'm sure it'll draw a lot of uh, research interest. I think we're going to get into the same thing with the next story, which I don't mean to jump ahead, but Pika is an interesting example of the same sort of idea. We love generative video. Like it's, it's fascinating to play with. In fact, this week on the show, I spent a bunch of time with Runway's Motion Brush, which is a really cool tool and interesting, Runway ML's Motion Brush. It always, it, we're still a few steps away, right? And I think the promise when you see the trailers of these things is always like, yeah. good God, how can you generate like this really cool thing? And then when you actually practically try to use it, it's not that Great. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to be great. It's I'm sure for the two of you who have been following this space for, for years and years, like it looks incredible. And for us, it does too, but it's not, it's not there yet. And I think you're right though. These small companies that are raising, you know, a, a 10, 20, 30, sometimes a hundred million dollars, it's going to be really hard for them to compute, uh, compete when Dolly three does the same thing, which is probably, I assume, or, 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 you know, Gemini, which is probably less than six months away. And it's going to be an interesting space for sure. 
That's right. Yeah. So uh, as you know, Jeremy is still pretty short. Really, these are more like GIF generators or GIF generators, if you prefer, rather than videos. This is just four seconds. Uh, one final interesting note, I'll send this one. Uh, they did also release a white paper. They have stable video diffusion, scaling latent video diffusion models to large data sets. Just a traditional sort of academic paper that uh, includes this link to the code and model weights. So, you know, as a former academic, uh, I found it pretty neat. And uh, the paper doesn't have anything overly interesting. Like technique wise, this is scaling, right? So, this is taking pretty straightforward techniques and just training a lot of data, making a big model, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and nothing too groundbreaking, but uh, yeah, again, exciting to see this coming out for researchers to build upon. And on to the lightning round with another uh, AI video story. Generative video startup Pika Labs launches version 1.0 and raises $55 million in funding. So this came out uh, pretty soon after, Stable Video Diffusion, and this startup Pika Labs, uh, which specializes in video generation, has now released their 1.0 model, which has a bunch of uh, capabilities for generating and editing videos in uh, different styles like 3D animation, anime, cartoon, and cinematic. They've been in pre-release for six months and already they've had half a million users uh, who generated millions of videos per week, apparently, which is quite impressive. So uh, yeah, they're definitely on the rise and you can now join a waitlist to have access to this tool. I, I love Pika. It's really a cool company and they've done really interesting stuff. I think the, my whole take on this is the more of these, the better, because you're going to get interesting tools out of them. I just worry a little bit about the size of it, right? I think this, and, and maybe I don't need to worry about that. Maybe that's not a thing to have to sweat. Like maybe I'm just should be happy for this company that it's got $55 million in funding. But in general, I think it's going to be so hard to watch Runway at least feels like it had the first leg, right? Runway seems like it's bringing stuff again and again. But Pika, I know there's a bunch of other companies that have come out in the same sort of way. I love their their trailer video, but until I can get my hands on it, I don't know yet. And I've uh, Kevin's played with Pika. We've done some stuff with Pika. Yeah, is this another one of those, the trailer looks amazing, look at the dew on a leaf and look at the sci-fi plant grow, but then when you try to just make a human smile, their face melts into their neck <laughs> and the whole experience is broken. I, I hear the refrain often, and I totally understand about all these companies are just going to get slaughtered as the, the bigs move into the space. But when I look at the list of the who's who that have invested in this round of Pika from Carpathy to Eleven Labs to Hugging Face Elite, they they are clearly aware of the space as well. And they've decided to move in on Pika. So there must be something going on there that has them convinced that they can compete with the likes of a runway or a Gemini or whatever might be coming out in the future. I think that's a really good point. It's it's one of these you know when you talk to people in the space, it's it, people are divided into the camp that says you know the one model that conquers them all type thing, and the camp that says well it looks more like expert systems. You know you may have a central kind of open AI DeepMind type of system that does a lot of important things, but then you know the expertise at the at the nodes is still going to be really important. Um, I think it's pretty unclear, and people can have different yeah theses about this. And I, I think it's also a question as to whether you can bootstrap into a position as a leader through an interesting avenue, right? Like there's some bet here that says like, yeah, you know, for $55 million, like 
it, it sounds like a lot, and it, and it is in any other industry. Um, but maybe there's a way to wedge into other more scaled systems, and, and who knows? So yeah, I think that's a really good point. We just don't know. And yeah, I, I also noted the list of uh, uh, people who invested here is quite impressive. They said they've raised a total of fifty-five million so far. So I guess that's pre-seed plus seed plus Series A. Um, and yeah, they have Nat Friedman and Daniel Gross, big names in AI investing. They have Adam D'Angelo, the famous now oh, yeah. board <laughs> yeah. of directors guy at OpenAI <laughs> and CEO of Quora, but also Andre Kapafi, Clem Delangu of Hugging Face, uh, and many others. And uh, if I had to guess, uh, another kind of interesting thing about this is this uh, is another one of these AI startups that came out of academia. Uh, by this is co-founded by Demi Guo and Chenlin Meng, who are former PhD students at uh, Stanford, and also have uh, at least uh, in the case of Guo, she has worked at Meta on its AI research division and written papers on diffusion and and so on. So in some case, I think especially for kind of these emerging areas, having that technical background does still matter. Although in other cases, like scaling large language models, maybe it's becoming less important. Cass, I want to ask you guys a real quick question about this, because I think you're better experts on this than I am. A, a company like this that comes out of academia, like, you know, I think the use case of everybody like making our fun clips of like, you know, birds flying or, or people talking is small. Where do you think like this goes long term? Like, what do you see? What is the bet people are putting on this particular type of company for like use case in the future? Because I think the thing I think about is costs a lot of money to run these programs, right? Like $55 million when you think about it. If they're taking a loss on every video generation, which I think they are because peak up till now hasn't been charging. What is the use case of this particular company and who's going to who's going to use it to the level that it will be worth this much money like cuz runway is kind of posi- positioning themselves as a editing suite which is somebody from the television business understands like that's Adobe's place and you could see it being acquired by Adobe or it could be something else where do you think Pika's long-term use case is it's a good question, and it really depends on what they project as their, I guess, you know, goal. If you can go to generate, you know, minutes, hours, if you can have real control, then you could use it in a real sort of animation or even video production uh, case where you need to add some new footage. In the short term, I could easily see this coming into producing ads. We've already seen oh, yeah. a lot of companies <laughs> wanting to produce like modeling ads with more yeah. diverse models, but just using AI because the it's hands easier. all go crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't watch out. Watch out yeah. for the hands in those ads. No They're glove company will ever <laughs> leverage That's right. generative AI. Um, and models, and models, you are safe. Hand models are safe. Yes. Uh, and if you do go look at their website, they do have an example where you can sort of uh, edit the video. Uh, so probably that's more so like adding the content of the video more specifically. I would imagine that's more useful in the short term. I think there is also the legitimate possibility that we're looking at a market failure here. Like it's mm. you know not inconceivable that this does end up going nowhere. And it, one of the challenges with this area, this whole space, is like the usual progression of you know seed stage where companies raise at like a ten million dollar valuation, and then Series A where they raise you know maybe five ten million at like a fifty million dollar valuation, and then Series B and so on. That progression no longer really works in the same way. I think this kind of breaks the model because you have this one big play. 
you have to pre-train a large model at some point, and that's the cost for even starting to test your business hypothesis. And so I think what we're seeing partly here, especially when you look at YC folks like Daniel Gross, who have tons of experience like making these kinds of bets, I think there's a certain amount of like, yeah, I'm going to throw some money away to figure out this thesis. And it, like at a meta level, this could be completely shot, but do you really want to bet implicitly against this get kind of founders themselves sort of working this out? I don't know what the right answer is, but that could be part of what's factoring. Only in VC can you throw away $55 million, right? <laughs> well, actually, those are expensive bootstraps. Like It's so yeah. funny that we're like, well, they're an up-and-comer with only 55 in the yeah. coffers. We'll see how they do. Good luck, kids. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get too spicy, but let's just say stability. I got a lot of money and uh, <laughs> there's some problems in terms of commercialization there. But moving on to the next story, uh, which is screenshots show XAI's chatbot Grok on X's web app. X, now Twitter or previously Twitter, will have this chatbot that we discussed, I think, previously last week or two weeks ago. Um, Grok is coming out of XAI, which is Elon Musk's basically OpenAI-esque company. And Grok is basically ChatGPT, but snarky. Is, is what it seems to be so far, snarky, and it has access to Twitter and some kind of up-to-date information and things like that. So there's a bit of a differentiation. And yes, it seems that if you are subscribed to X Premium Plus, which is a 16 per month tier on Plus, plus, X, plus, plus. How many pluses yeah. can we add? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, now you have the, you will have uh, the access to Grok uh, as part of your X subscription. Yeah, to Gavin's point, like they in this article, they highlight three different. So I didn't realize there were this many different tiers, by the way. I didn't realize there were this many different ways I could pay Elon to use Twitter. Um, so apparently, if you want to pay Elon $3 a month, uh, you get the basic version and you get an edit button and apparently the ability to post longer articles and videos. X premium, $8 a month, removes half the ads in the for you and following feeds. And then X premium plus, which is 16 bucks a month. Interesting price point to circle back to later, by the way. Uh, this is what unlocks Grok, apparently. This like um, basically chat GPT-like thing. It also has access to like you know, web browsing capabilities and real-time knowledge. The reason I'm saying 16 bucks a month is interesting for that tier is you compare that then to you know pr uh, the um, uh, premium tier for say ChatGPT or Microsoft Copilot, 20 bucks a month. I'm kind of curious about the unit economics. Like, how do they make that profitable? Is 16 bucks a month enough? Have they found efficiencies and in inference time? Like, I don't know, but it's interesting that everybody seems to be consolidating around that that price point. Oh, I was going to say, we, we have personified Grok as an AI caveman on our show who comes on to talk about big fire and sky and magic box that make human think fast. We love Grok conceptually. Uh, I'm as we talked earlier about the, the sort of guardrails that companies put up. I don't know that Elon is the one that I want to be the captain of this particular ship. But that aside, I love that there's someone going after a hey, Who's in charge of aligning these models and deciding what they can output to the end user? Who's in charge of that? And who do you want in charge of that? And I kind of like the notion of someone who says, let's have an LLM with some attitude, an LLM that won't mind giving you the recipe to maybe a substance that should be controlled, but should we control your access to the information on how that substance is made you know, or created? I, I like that there is this potential uh, entrant into the LLM arena. And, you know, people love to say that X is a dumpster fire, and that's because there's a lot of smoke coming from there lately. That is for sure. If Grok can just fix 
the trending tab because it has that fire hose of Twitter information? How many times do you see that someone, a celebrity or a topic is trending and you click on it and it's nothing but K-pop and crypto spam and what else in the wake? If they can leverage quality AI to clean that up and give me signal to the noise so I can really see what's trending locally or globally, I might actually up my my ex subscription for 16 bucks a month just to have Grok make sense of all that noise on their platform. And I can't believe I'm saying that. Yeah, it's, I think it is interesting. If, if I were still using Twitter as I used to uh, quite a lot uh, in the past, I could see it as being pretty appealing as far as ChatGPT Pro, quite expensive at 20 bucks a month. Um, if I'm already using it, I would definitely want to get rid of ads. And now you have access to Grok as well, which Seem, I mean, I, I haven't played around with it myself. It seems to be a capable chatbot, so it can actually answer random questions about French history or whatever you seem to be curious about and don't want to read Wikipedia. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see if people do uh, start really using Grok at a large scale. I'm excited about it in some ways. I, to Kevin's point, I'm not really thrilled about who's doing it, but I think the idea of real-time LLM access is fascinating. Have you, I'm assuming you two have played around with Pi, um, and Pi is really interesting, and we had an experience with Pi pretty early on where like, we asked it about Diablo. We were playing Diablo 4, and we were asking it about Diablo 4 tips, and it was able to give us... like That's our French history, yes, yes, just exactly. to be clear. That's what we do instead of French history. <laughs> but it gave us real-time feedback, and we were both kind of shocked at the time, like, well, how is like doing this and there is a really magic kind of pill which is the idea that if you can ask these llms like you know ChatGPT famously was a year and a half behind and now it's not as far but if you could ask them something about like what kevin said is like why is um you know why is this band trending right now and you could get the right answer that's actual real value in the real world or even like why is pika labs trending right now and then it could point you to pika labs it feels like as Google has kind of gotten pieces picked away from it, like I think Google is kind of the the major search project is probably in, in pretty big trouble in the like mid to late future in terms of how we search for things. If, if X can pick away at that real-time search aspect, which is what trending topics always tried to do, that's a big deal. And again, I'm not, you know, I think we all can, Elon is Elon. He's doing stuff that I don't believe in personally, but I am also a fan of like seeing one more LLM try for that, that thing. Grok and roll, baby. Yeah. Oh, God. God. Oh, that Sounds hurt. like something Grok would say. Did, did you get that <laughs> joke from Grok? Is that a Grok joke? Yeah. Grok, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, is like a nerdy science fiction term from a, a famous classic. I forget the Stranger which one. in a Strange Land. I read it Stranger. many times when I was about 10 years old, which is what, yeah. probably when Elon read it as well. So. Timeline. Great yeah. book. You great be. book. Great book. And one last story for the section. And once again, one chatbot. Here we have Amazon introduces Q and AI chatbot for companies. Uh, this is specifically designed for business customers who have concerns about security and privacy. Uh, and yeah, so it's one of these more, let's say, limited chatbots that are more kind of streamlining the use of your products uh, for a certain use case rather than something general like Rock, seemingly. But uh, yeah, interesting to see Amazon sort of having a very piecemeal approach towards AI. They have uh, a lot of it going on at AWS, uh, obviously, but we haven't seen a ton on Amazon itself from a more consumer or even user uh, standpoint. So I guess now they have their own chatbot, just like everyone else. 
Yeah, th- this is also really consistent with the Amazon philosophy, right? I mean, it's always about grounding things in real-world use cases that essentially make money today. Uh, and this is good and bad in different ways. It's made them the behemoth they are today. It also potentially creates a blind spot for like medium-term, long-term things that are more kind of moonshot bets like AGI. So we saw them like wind down famously their AGI team uh, fairly recently on that uh, something like that basis. Um, but this also leans into another strength of theirs, which is they're really good at security. Like Amazon AWS is really good at you know keeping playing a tight security game. That's why DoD loves them, and that's why you know they're uh, they're really good at this aspect. So you know th- this whole like idea of will allow you to fine tune on your data using you know your own uh, systems and all that, and and on on premises enterprise type stuff. That whole orbit uh, is kind of what they're moving towards. It seems with this, and and it's a very Amazonian move too. So uh, kind of cool. I just wish someone would have asked their chatbot, should we call our product Q? Please, please don't call anything else Q. One thing they could have done. (laughs) Not only is there Q star, which I'm sure you all talked about, but the thing that I keep thinking about, Q is is kind of ruined for our society right now, if you know a little bit. I don't want to go into detail, but Q is a problem. Yes, you do. Go into detail, Gavin. You do it all the time on our podcast. I have so much to say about Q. Let me tell you all about Q and who he is. No. Also, this is like Amazon. My thing about Amazon, you guys probably feel this way too. I've had Alexa in my house for, I don't know, 10 years now. Just get Alexa fixed. Like if you put an LLM into Alexa and I could ask it questions, that would literally change my entire family's life. Sometimes I think these guys need to, and I I get it. Like Amazon's trying to be careful, but like if they announced for Alexa, hey, we're putting an LLM in it. If they bought Pi and put Pi into Alexa, that would fundamentally shift the idea of who they were in the AI space. I, I Amazon is sometimes a, a, a enigma to me. I, I just I own Amazon stock. I'm a big fan of the company. I've been following it since you know the late '90s, obviously. But they definitely seem like they're they're not in this game at least as much as I would expect them to be. Actually, you know, on the Q thing, the funny thing is, I'm so I'm so innocent. My first thought was uh, I went I went Star Trek and I went James Bond. And I yeah. was like, oh, those are pretty cool things. You know, the, the James Bond thing really seems to work. And then yeah. when you mentioned Q, like QQ, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Q was ruined for uh, the last 10 years, last five years it got ruined. Yeah. yeah. You know, us Americans uh, have a harder time yes. forgetting, let's yes. say. Uh, and just yeah. one final factual note. Uh, interestingly, this starts at $20 per user each month, similar huh. to ProPilot. And uh, a, li- a bit less than Microsoft and Google, who charge uh, 30 per user per month for their enterprise business tiers. And moving on to our next section, applications and business, starting with probably one of the more discussed stories of this past week, uh, a continuation of the OpenAI drama we've been covering for the past few weeks. The story is unpacking the hype around OpenAI's rumored new Q-Star model. So... There was a report coming out of Information and Reuters from insiders that there was a letter sent to the board uh, just a few days uh, before Sam Altman's famous firing, in which several staff researchers uh, informed the board of a new powerful AI that was developed. And this new AI seems to be 
nobody really knows. There's very little detail out there right now. There's a lot of speculation, but it's unclear. But it does seem to probably not be the same thing as ChatGPT. Uh, the little we do know is that with a lot of training, uh, this model was able to perform uh, at math at the level of grade school students, which which did make these researchers uh, optimistic about the future of Q star. So uh, yeah, it uh, spawned a ton of speculation. This is known to be true, I believe. So Q star is a thing, and there was in fact such a letter. But aside from that, very little is known. My two tidbits as an AI researcher, I will say first, I've been following this closely, and I don't think this probably in my mind, changes the fundamental story of what uh, happened to the board. It, I still think from everything I've read, it appears to be more of a power struggle at the board level where Sam Altman won control, tried to push Helen Toner out, failed, and then Helen Toner and the rest kind of retaliated. This might have played some role in that in terms of uh, potentially uh, being related to this you know, not consistently candid with a board line that they used in terms of maybe Sam Altman not mentioning this. But uh, yeah, regardless, this is kind of a, a tidbit that is interesting, but we shouldn't draw too much from. Yeah, we, we also have seen, I think there was an article in The Verge that came out shortly after the Reuters piece that originally said that this was all about the Q-Star breakthrough um, where the people in The Verge were saying, well, actually, no, it wasn't. And and the reasons were much more obscure and, and not to do with this. So there's a lot of ambiguity out there. Um, the Q-Star breakthrough, by the way, I think is especially interesting in its own right for what it could be. And there's been some really interesting speculation in terms of what Q-Star actually is. I want to just quickly take a second to sketch out one conspiracy theory that I personally really like. Um, it's, it's the only Q conspiracy theory that I buy into personally. Don't say those words together. Q conspiracy theory should make sure it's Q star conspiracy theory. Make sure you get that. Yeah, you just <laughs> activated a portion of the audience that we might have brought to the podcast. You guys aren't used to speaking to them. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so like I was saying, in the deep state, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I'm that, swatting that. at mechanical birds right now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, none of them are real. Um, all right. So the 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 conspiracy or the idea here behind Q Star one idea um, is potentially that. So if we think about these um, auto aggressive language models like GPT four and so on, how are they trained? Well, they're glorified text autocomplete systems. They take all the text on the internet take a sentence, predict the next word, and so on. That's how they're trained to kind of pick up all these human concepts. And the argument's been made. I don't particularly buy into it myself. I think scaling just that process actually can get you to human-level AI. But there's an interesting argument that says that you can't. Because ultimately, people say, if you train these systems to just emulate human behavior by emulating human writing, they're ultimately capped by the intelligence of the humans that produced the text. They'll never get more intelligent than the people who wrote this, this text that they're trained on. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, how do we, how do we guarantee or how do we, how do we violently push past that, that uh, upper bound that it may be on, on the intelligence, intelligence of these systems? And so one strategy that OpenAI has been looking at, that Ilya Sutskever at OpenAI in particular has been looking at, is... Um, pulled from this paper that he contributed to called Let's Verify This Step by Step. 
And this was a process that involved so the, this thing called chain of thought prompting, where you have the model break down its approach to solving a problem into a series of steps, uh, which helps it actually reason better. But this particular approach had uh, a verifier system evaluate each of these intermediate thought processes. So rather than just chaining a thought process together and um, having that lead to a better conclusion just because you're forcing the system to go through an explicit reasoning process, this actually involves evaluating explicitly each step of that reasoning process with a sort of third-party uh, model. And what was found was that using this technique, uh, they apparently were able to get a essentially a performance increase that you could only otherwise get by a 30-fold increase in the scale of the system, which is immediately interesting to me for its safety implications because this implies you can preview what a model 30 times larger could do, but it also means a radical acceleration in capabilities um, and a shift of your computational resources from training time, you're not just training model, to inference time. Because now you're pouring in more computational resources to the evaluation of the reasoning process. This applied to math seems like it could be what QSTAR was about. And I'll just close by saying the reason math is relevant here is um, math actually has a ground truth value that you can evaluate objectively. So this is one way, if you have a system that can actually solve math problems, you can kind of say, okay, this system is genuinely superhuman. It's not bounded by just like human level text. You can, in principle at least, use the correctness as a reward uh, to train a, a model on. So anyway, lots of disparate threads and different reasons to believe this, but my particular corner of the conspiracy theory rabbit hole universe <laughs> is that somewhere in the deep state, people are trying to train this thing on math to do something like what I just described. And actually, to add to that uh, speculation, let's not call it conspiracy, um, um, <laughs> it is worth noting that QSTAR it has a very particular usage in the context of reinforcement learning. So Q-learning is a foundational idea. In reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning is when you learn by trial and error. So as you said, uh, ChatGPT and so on are trained basically with an autocomplete objective, right? You just kind of have some text and you teach it given some partial input of a text, produce the text that comes after it, not trial and error. This is supervised learning or, or you could call semi-supervised learning. Whereas trial and error uh, learning, like reinforcement learning, the benefit is you don't need a pre-existing data set necessarily, right? You can just try things out. And even if you don't have, you know, text from humans doing some task that uh, you want your model to do, maybe the model can figure out as long as you do have some way to measure its performance and give feedback, which is the reward mechanism. So that's the, you know, basic idea of reinforcement learning. We've discussed a lot how uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback is pretty core to the alignment part of these models. So there is already some of that going on in terms of making models not just be autocompleters, but to be autocompleters that do sort of what we want. And it does seem, if you want to speculate, that QSTAR as a name would imply that this is moving more in a reinforcement learning direction for optimizing the model performance and gaining new capabilities, which is, of course, what OpenAI was all in back when they started. Early on, we had uh, you know, their Dota bots and so on, where they were going all in on reinforcement learning and trial and error and not yet with stuff like LLMs. 
I have a question for the two of you uh, as somebody who has spent more time in the actual research side of this. So my my kind of metaphor for this is like, uh, in the dumbed down metaphor is like, you've got a recipe and somebody goes to make a recipe. And if you do it without having like, you just go to make a recipe out of a, out of a book, you have a pretty good chance of screwing it up the first time because you're just following instructions. Whereas if you had a professional chef kind of watch each step along the way and make sure you're doing it, like it reinforces the fact that you've done that right and you get the kind of end game of it. My big question here is, it doesn't, this, as an outsider, this doesn't feel like a, a crazy new idea, right? Going to this, because I, I, there was a great video, by the way, by a YouTuber named AI Explained that kind of walked through this whole thing, 30 minute long. I suggest everybody listen to it if you can, um, who, who did this kind of let's, let's step by step, kind of talked about all this thing. Is it just that like people haven't put the peanut butter and chocolate together before and that's what's going on here? Is Because it seems like, why wouldn't they have done this before is my big question. Like it seems like it's not that big of a leap to this science. My take is I don't, I suspect there aren't especially radical new ideas here. Uh, but when it comes to these very large language models, the majority of our work so far has been just in the massive training run where you just do the same supervised learning bit. You haven't really had too much work on expanding their capabilities uh, or you know, aside from alignment, reinforcement learning to learn to do new things hasn't been in play aside from like research papers. And I, I don't think we've discussed many of those research papers uh, even still it, it just is very expensive uh, and that's one of the problems with reinforcement learning is because you don't have like true answer and you have to get things wrong as well as right it ends up being very expensive to do the training so uh, i think probably this is maybe more of this kind of trying to get things that are pretty well established to work in practice in practice yeah, yeah and, and RL is like notorious for this. Like reinforcement learning is just so much harder in practice than deep learning to get these systems to to work through that. This is a has always been a problem for the space. Um, but I would say also like there are indications that Google's Gemini um, probably uses RL in the back end. In fact, almost certainly. It's Demis um, so, right? Like he's the that's like kind of his baby originally. I mean, that's he's the deep mind kind of vibe of it, right? Yeah, and like David Silver, a deep mind especially, has been like really big on. Um, I think he's a former student of Rich Sutton, specifically the guy who invented reinforcement learning. So there's a you're right. There's a lot of pedigree there. Um, there's a lot of pedigree in OpenAI as well, kind of in that direction, but they are more deep learning oriented, and that's certainly Ilya's background, uh, more of the Jeff Hinton line. If you mm -hmm. if you uh, <laughs> a lot of inside baseball here, but yeah, um, yeah. So so I think I think there's that. I think another element too is when you do things at scale, like the secret sauce of this. A lot of it is in the finicky reinforcement learning stuff. A lot of it is also in the data itself. And so mm. one of the things that's sort of under-celebrated at OpenAI, even in training models like GPT-4, is, is just the, the challenge of curating the data set that they're training the model on. So there are all these little optimizations that, you know, big picture, the idea is simple. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people are, are having these ideas too. And just for anybody out there, I'll round this out, who's actually seeking the truth, go to your favorite internet machine and type in 4chan, <laughs> Project yes. Tundra, AES encryption, and QSTAR. And you will see that not only did it get good at math, it's got so good that it broke our encryption technology. And that's why the government and several three-letter agencies have <laughs> leapt all over this. And that's why Sammy Altman had to go bye-bye. <laughs>
That's why there are no birds outside your window right now, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to round this out uh, from my end, I will say I think it's probably reinforcement learning. Although, again, this is all speculation. It hasn't been uh, confirmed. And it probably is a step uh, towards more advanced AI. I think inevitably learning from trial and error is something you need. In some sense, you can do this without reinforcement learning already with in-context learning in these models. Uh, but um, kind of continual learning and adjusting of a model weights via trial and error is not something that has been done so much aside from the alignment bit. And so, yeah, I as with probably everyone, I would love to know more about QSTAR, but we just don't know. And next story, NVIDIA announces financial results for third quarter fiscal 2024. Doesn't sound super interesting, but this is NVIDIA we're talking about, so the numbers are pretty crazy, and that alone I think merits mentioning. So for this third quarter, NVIDIA reported revenue of 18.12 billion, which is up 34% from the previous quarter and up 206% from a year ago. Uh, as you might imagine, a lot of this is driven by the uh, data center revenue and and you know the crazy demand for GPUs, uh, their bread and butter. NVIDIA is still kind of the probably the most uh, successful story coming out of this whole AI boom as far as who gets all the money. How how did I, and Kevin, I think it's the same boat, how did I as a gamer for, for whatever, 35, 40 years of my life, more, 45 plus years of my life, I'm 49, how did I as a gamer who has always had NVIDIA cards, who is early to AI not buy NVIDIA stock, I have no idea. Because this is, I mean, from a business perspective, this is really one of the, the most incredible scenarios of the last five plus years, right? You've got one company that pivoted really smartly. And pivot is the wrong word. Like they discovered that their cards were really good at doing this processing. And now they own the market. I mean, that is a crazy thing. And, and again, NVIDIA has been in my life forever and ever. Um, I think this is great for NVIDIA. I, I think the bigger thing is going to come to the roadblocks that are starting to appear. Like there's a, there's a small, speaking of conspiracy stories, there's a small conspiracy story that part of the reason that Sam Altman, when he was kicked out, um, instead of trying to go and do another startup, which he probably could have easily raised 10 billion plus from VCs, part of the reason why he maybe didn't do that is because getting cards and getting compute is really hard right now. So it's NVIDIA's incredible business story, but also like we're in this place right now where we are in like the the Oh, the desert of of compute, and we just need a lot more. So I'm hoping that there's some company, you know, all these companies, Microsoft, uh, OpenAI themselves, um, now Amazon is trying to create new cards. So hopefully that'll come around. But the NVIDIA story is a pretty incredible one. Yeah, it's it's also interesting where the bottlenecks come from in that compute story, right? Like we have, so we have companies like NVIDIA that have their own chips, and then you might think like, oh, Amazon's got you know Tranium two that's coming out, and we've got you know Google has their their TPU V five and all this stuff, and Microsoft and, and so on. Um, at the end of the day, right now. Uh, we're kind of bottlenecked by just the ability to produce the semiconductor chips that then get packaged to make these GPUs. So, you know, companies like NVIDIA are, are known as AI hardware designers. Uh, the reason they're called that is that they're designing the GPUs, shipping those designs to a foundry in Taiwan that actually makes them. And it's that foundry, that capacity that right now is kind of the main bottleneck. And NVIDIA, actually, a lot of their success so far 
it's coming less and less from their ability to design cutting edge chips because AMD has wicked good chips. And like a lot of the other chips actually are competitive or even better than NVIDIA's H100, which is the current market leader. What NVIDIA has been doing is they have been super, super aggressive in buying up capacity from TSMC from Taiwan and basically crowding out all of these other entrants because they have been willing to lose money on overbuying massive amounts of inventory just because. And this is down to Jensen Huang, NVIDIA's CEO, super aggressive guy when it comes to this stuff. And so much of their strategy relies on just like this sort of brute force crowding out, increasingly, especially as people, again, are getting better and better at designing and making software ecosystems around their products. And in addition to Vadbit, I think it is worth noting that uh, they've been at this for a while. They really made a pretty strong move towards enabling AI at least a decade ago, more than a decade ago. So the initial deep learning boom that started in roughly 2012, 2011 was in, in part really possible because people started to realize the power of GPUs. Early on, you had people like Ilya Satskover uh, writing their own code <laughs> to run neural nets on GPUs. And very quickly, NVIDIA established a lot of software and a lot of support for that sort of thing going back to like 2012. And then basically everyone in academia started using GPUs from NVIDIA for their research. And then that you know, also kind of came true for industry as a result. So yeah, a lot of kind of uh, interesting history of how NVIDIA got to this story of massive success. At the lightning round, and the first story is uh, actually also NVIDIA. It is delaying the rollout of its China-focused AI chip. This is H20, which is designed to comply with the U.S. export restrictions to China, which, as we've discussed, have been recently updated to be more restrictive and to get around some loopholes. And so the chip's launch has been pushed back to the first quarter of 2024, and NVIDIA stock fell a whole 2%. And that'll be related not only to the export controls, but also to the fact that China's domestic um, GPU production capacity has just been revealed to be like a, a live a live game. So Huawei, um, which is you can think of it as like China's Nvidia for this purpose, um, has managed to build a chip using homemade, like domestically made chips hardware from this company uh, called SMIC, again in China, that wasn't thought to be able to make chips this good, but but now can. And the this new chip that Huawei has designed, it's called the Ascend 910B or 910B. It's theoretically higher uh, in terms of its, uh, its, its output than NVIDIA's H20, which is this, this chip that's uh, being sent to China. And so even though this chip can beat export control restrictions, it will now have to compete with what may be on at least some axes a better performing domestically built Chinese chip. So it's, it's not just that like, oh, there, you know, these export controls mean that you can only ship the H20. It's also that domestically there's competition now that's credible uh, against this kind of level of compute. So it's uh, an interesting challenge to NVIDIA for sure. I'm uh, I'm so curious to know if those Chinese chips are real or not. Like this is the hardest thing to know about the, ch the stuff coming out of China. Like I don't know if you all both saw that like big presentation. There was like a couple weeks ago, there was like a big kind of press conference around the Chinese chips and like 
it's a closed system, right? Like we don't know, like in the past, China has completely BS their way into something and other times they actually have the goods. So if I were, if I were China and I was this big, like kind of authoritarian state and I was getting denied access to what conceivably could be the future of, of the internet or of computing, I would try to do something. Right. And like the big question is, have they figured it out? I think my take on this is, is that like, this is where the AI conversation crosses from business to global politics. And it's so weird to consider that like this is global politics now. And we're going to be yep. entering a stage where it could be global politics from here on out. And like this is like, you know, I think I can remember somebody recently, one of the big AI players compared this to, to nuclear weapons, right? Like in the idea that it's maybe oh, not Gavin, as just, not in the yeah. lightning round. You can't do yeah, this yeah, in the no, lightning round. Late, you can't late. bring up nuclear weaponry yes. and geopolitics. Okay, yes. go ahead. Too late. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly in that this is the next kind of like larger thing. And people who maybe aren't, uh, maybe people who are in our audience maybe see this, but the larger world doesn't see this yet, but it's coming, right? Like we're in this world where like literally compute is going to be an arms race and that is fascinating in general. Absolutely. And I, I will say just very briefly, it, there are indications that this node, um, the seven nanometer node that um, is actually being used to make these domestic Chinese chips might actually be a good node. They have produced millions of Huawei smartphones. And that sort of thing is very difficult to fake. So um, my opinion's kind of shifted on that a bit from like, it seems like probably BS because China's, this is the kind of failure mode that they do a lot um, to, I, th I think it's I think it's probably legit, but um, you're right. I mean, we've got to wait for the dust to settle. And next story is share sales set to test financial impact of OpenAI's leadership turmoil. Pretty straightforward story. Before Sam Altman was fired, there was a planned uh, share uh, sell so that OpenAI employees could sell their equity in the company at a very high valuation uh, of $86 billion. That was kind of scrapped for a bit, uh, or at least kind of forgotten about as all the OpenAI drama unfolded. And now it is still on track. And I guess the big question mark is like, will people actually want to buy at the same valuation as was there before Sam Altman and all this drama happened? What are you guys buying at? <laughs> Depends on what I can fetch for my kidney. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably better, probably a good move. Kidney for some open AI shares right now. Yeah. You can get a, a mechanical kidney in the future for sure. From open AI probably. Yeah. Yeah. So not, not much to say here. I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, if I had to guess, probably investors are still like, it's open AI. I want to have some of that. Give it however much it costs. I think so. Yeah, my, my two cents, my guess is I think with the board reshuffle, there's probably been a shift of leverage from the kind of more safety-minded end of the org to the more productized kind of accelerationist end. So if, if anything, I, I would expect this to lead to more investment. Um, there was a, 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 a funny line in this article. It said, still, Altman's return as CEO has proved has provided some relief for investors and could pave the way to, for a simpler corporate structure with a clearer focus on driving returns rather than the board's promise of creating AI that, quote, benefits all humanity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fuck that shit. Am I right? <laughs> uh, <so laughs> yeah, 
yeah, I was going to say, if anything, this made this would make me more bullish on it, you know, it, and, and seeing the way that, you know, Microsoft quickly rallied around Sam and the team as well. Um, you know, they, they want to protect their investments. I, I just I don't think OpenAI is did, did, did artificial super intelligence get delayed by four days. Sure. Is the share price uh, conceivably going to take a hit from it? He's back. So, no, it's I don't think it's going to. Next story, Amazon and Salesforce expand partnership to add new AI capabilities. Salesforce and Amazon Web Services are having this agreement that would make it easier for customers to manage their data across Salesforce AWS by integrating generative AI technologies, in particular, Amazon Bedrock, which is Amazon's sort of a service for big language models, foundation models. You can get access to Anthropic's cloud, for instance, through Amazon Bedrock. So this is if you are a developer or a company and you want to use a big language model through Amazon, through AWS, this is how you would do it. And uh, yeah, this is, I think, worth noting just in terms of Salesforce as a company is another big player in the AI space, probably less mentioned uh, or brought up, uh, but they do have a lot of investments, a lot of research, a lot of products, and they are also pretty aggressive on it. And one last story, AI21 takes Series C to $208 million with additional $53 million in funding. AI21 is an Israeli company that develops AI systems for enterprise. This is their Series C, so they've been a while, uh, around for a while, and they now have annual revenues of around 50 to $60 million and plan to expand with an additional 100 employees uh, in 2024. We've mentioned their Jurassic 2 foundation model, uh, so they're in this big model space. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty notable player as far as companies wanting to make models for enterprise use cases. It, it is. It's also, I would say, I want to say like a surprisingly low valuation, given what we've seen come out of like Cohere and uh, even yeah, like even um, oh god, like Adept companies like that that sort of got into the space a lot later. Um, you know, AI Twenty One Labs they got in like they were literally player number one after OpenAI to release a GPT three like model that was Jurassic One Jumbo back in twenty twenty one. So like that first mover advantage, you know, you might have expected it to materialize into something more, especially given the hype that hit right after. Uh, so I, I'm kind of intrigued by this. It's uh, you know one point four billion dollar valuation, so certainly nothing to nothing to scoff at, but it's it's also you know, again, you think about the scale of these runs that people are having to do, and and the loss per inference, um, you know, the profitability side. So, I'm really curious if they be, end up becoming a live player, or just if they end up, you know, kind of squandering their first mover advantage. I'm not sure what the uh, the backstory is there, but it's kind of interesting. I actually think one thing that's interesting to think about that we talked about before is these timelines. As much as it's like the Hinton timeline or the Altman timeline, what I mean, like where these people come from, if you look at like the major players in the AI models now, a lot of them come out of this kind of Silicon Valley, like kind of pipeline that produced like OpenAI. And even OpenAI is where you see Anthropic coming out of and you see other stuff coming out of. I wonder in part, it's weirdly like, you know, people have talked about the Valley being like this. You got to be in the Valley now. And I think yeah. all of us are not in the Valley, like, or, or actually, sorry, one of us is in the valley. But um, this idea that like that's where this stuff is happening, and I wonder, in fact, if it's just as something as simple as like 
This is a, it was a company that started outside of the Valley, I think, right? This is an Israeli company. And so maybe it's something as simple as that. Like it's all coming out of one pipeline and that's where the money flows and all this other stuff happens. But it is interesting to me that you see a company like this that was this early and kind of has struggled to be size wise to compete, I feel like. Yeah, only one point four billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. You know, it's different than eighty billion for sure. I just want to know: Can the models role play as like a salty Viking who's really into <laughs> hentai? Because <laughs> that's those are the benchmarks that we care about. I'm sure <laughs> there's some B two B solution. Blah blah blah. Okay, whatever. Can it role play? If it doesn't demonetize you on YouTube, is it really an advance? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good, good question. Good question. <laughs> And on to our next section, projects and open source. Our first story is Starling 7B, increasing LLM helpfulness and harmlessness with RLAIF. So this is research coming out of Berkeley. They're introducing a new open source language model, Starling 7B, 7B here being 7 billion, one of the kind of popular sizes, I guess, uh, lately. And the big interesting bit here is this RLAIF, reinforcement learning from AI feedback that they're introducing. They created feedback using GPT-4. They created this Nectar dataset, which is a dataset of rankings on responses from GPT-4. And with training on just on that, uh, they actually seem to outperform uh, pretty much all the other uh, available uh, models for comparison, which is interesting. We've seen various kind of tidbits of research on this front of improving um, models via feedback from other models, for instance, or generating entire new data sets using GPT-4 and then training smaller models based on that. This is another uh, piece of work along those lines and another very good uh, open source medium-ish sized language model. Yeah, I I think one important sort of like tempering dimension to this, and we've seen this a lot with uh, the other RLAI uh, F uh, kind of examples that we've looked at on, on the podcast before, but anytime you get AI to provide feedback rather than a human, um, that AI will have gameable preferences. So GPT-4 likes a certain kind of generated text. Um, one common example is, uh, for many of these systems, longer answers just end up being preferred to shorter ones because they, you know, that's just like part of anyway what's what's baked in. Uh, and so what you tend to find is a perverse optimization pressure to actually like generate outputs that are favorable to GPT-4, but wouldn't necessarily be favorable to human beings. This is something that, uh, to their credit, they actually flag explicitly in this paper, but it's something that doesn't always get flagged. And I think, it, I can't remember if it was Vicuña or Alpaca that first did this, but uh, that was one of the things that you know people were pointing out at the time is like, look, great that it, it does better according to GPT-4, but what about according to human reviewers? That feedback obviously is more expensive to collect, but it's an important part of the, the um, equation here. Still cool that they're able to to, uh, to achieve this. So this is a, it is a big deal. And just to expand a little bit on why this is a big deal, I think uh, an interesting note is this is, they took Llama 2 7B as their starting point, Llama 2 7B chat. So that was already kind of aligned for chat purposes and, and doing the usual uh, chat GPT-esque thing. And then they fine-tuned it further with this new data set. And when comparing with the bigger Llama, Llama 270B, 
across various uh, use cases uh, like STEM, math, coding, roleplay apparently is in this empty bench. <laughs> there you go, okay. uh, <laughs> My ears are tingling. Say yes. more. <laughs> <laughs> According to all of that, if that uh, further fine tuning with uh, AI feedback resulted in it becoming much better and even better than uh, Llama 270p. So yeah, cool to see this coming out and being seemingly very good. So something that I say often, and I, again, I, I want to respect the lightning round, but part of my ignorance here, if different models have different proclivities and they can be gamed, outputs can be gamed to get a preferential response and, okay, get the seal of approval, are they taking outputs from their model and running them against all of the other models that might have their own biases to create a sort of a meta preference, like Vicuña has its thing, Claude has its thing, GPT-4 has its thing, and so it wants to get the response that gets the highest rankings from all of these models. Is, is anybody doing that? Is that what's happening here? I think in this case, they are using GPT-4 as the source of feedback, and the reason I would say is that GPT-4 is just very good. So if you were to use a weaker model to produce the feedback, um, you know, you need that model to correct you, right? On the things like coding and math. And GPT-4 is very good at reasoning and coding and math and just general correctness. So there aren't that many models you can actually leverage to generate good data to train with. Got it. So the, the benefits of a consensus of all the models is completely wiped out if only one model is good enough to render the verdict, basically. Yeah. It, it's also the case, though, that like a lot of these models have correlated failure modes. So um, if you train a model on the output of other language models, even if they're diverse language models, if you do that too much, eventually your model will start to like generate gobbledygook. Like people have actually shown this. It's sort of this this weird. Um, I forget what the term is. It's like a, a collapse or something like that. Model model collapse or something. Um, but yeah, it's like it's a very deep pathology that that seems to be baked into these things at a pretty fundamental level. Oh, I'll stick to role play then. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> I yield my time. <laughs> I think you probably could do better, maybe the role play, if you fine tune more of a GPT-4. I don't know if GPT-4 is the best one for that, but uh, so far, yes, it is. Oh, yeah, we have found it's actually really interesting. We have found we've tried. So, are you all familiar with Ubabuga? Do you know what Ubabuga is? The front end. So, Ubabuga is this interesting thing. We haven't played with it for a bit, but it is, it is a it is essentially an automatic 11.11, but for character creation that was designed to run on some of these uh, llama models. And it's really interesting, like, right? It allows you to create these characters. And, and you know, when you talk about spicy role play, there's a lot of people out there using it for specific things, which we all can kind of figure out what they are. But, Me right um, now on my second yes. monitor. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. I was distracted. But, but what Kevin and I have found is that GPT-4 for a role play perspective, now you have to do the work. You have to kind of set it up. And in fact, I'm going to make a YouTube video this week about like how to create a character with GPT-4, but cool. it's really the best still at it. And I don't know why that is other than the fact that like maybe it's just a more complete model and you can do stuff and you can play around with it. You can't get it to do everything that you can get a llama model to do, but like you can get it to swear and, and be semi-uncensored if you get it to like, you know, play the right role. And that's still possible within GPT-4 itself. And one thing I will mention, I guess, on that front is I do kind of do this partially for my job, uh, which I don't go too much into, but we do have 
chatting with characters as one of the things we're working on. And yes, uh, GP4 is far better than 3.5. Uh, 3.5 usually devolves to a fairly generic kind of conversation. GPT-4 tends to be much more aligned with a character and their speech style. My hypothesis from a technical nerdy side is that as you scale these models, the biggest thing they get better at is in-context learning. So acting in accordance to a prompt and not defaulting to like a, a base answer. So I think GPT-4 along the lines of bigger models is just better at modifying its logic, internal logic or reasoning or whatever you want to call it, uh, based on what it is prompted with. It's interesting you say that because character AI has that problem, right? And I don't know what character AI's back back situation is, but I got to imagine it's probably not GPT-4 because of how expensive it might be. But we had that exact issue with character AI where it kind of devolves into the same logic based on if you ask it. We asked it all like about Grok and Elon Musk, and it all ended up at the same place basically over time, each character, no matter who it was. So one possibility is there's a phenomenon where the uh, the things that you include in the early stages of a, a prompt, and you guys probably know this already, but um, tend to be forgotten by the time you get to the end of the prompt. So recall becomes an issue. This is sort of related to um, uh, to the context window length as well. So as you lengthen that context window proportionately, uh, that issue gets made, mitigated somewhat. But yeah, I mean, you know, as the conversation goes on, you can kind of imagine like recalling the context becomes harder and harder until eventually you get this collapse into maybe a more, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but. Yeah, interesting. And on to our second story in this section, defending your voice against defakes. Uh, this is about a new tool called Antifake coming out from uh, Nina Ning Zhang, a computer science professor. And as the title implies, this is meant to uh, combat defakes. Uh, it employs adversarial techniques to prevent the synthesis of deceptive speech by making it more difficult for AI tools to read necessary characteristics from voice readings. So it's a bit similar to other things we've covered that relate to data poisoning, where you, for instance, can poison your art to make it so they can't be used for training um, uh, image generators. And uh, yeah, it's um, freely available. And according to what uh, they release, there is a very high success rate uh, in protecting you against uh, state-of-the-art speech synthesizers. Our audience really loved the coverage that we did of, uh, I think it was Nightshade was yep. the, 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 the data poisoning yep. tool for AI. But, you know, someone very quickly, uh, not someone, lots of people very quickly were like, well, oh, just take a screenshot of the monitor's output and then none of that data is in there. And there you go. And so when I look at something like this, I say, well, yeah, if someone's grabbing a, a, a direct raw wave file or maybe an MP3 of your voice and trying to throw that in to Koki or Eleven Labs and copy it, maybe the, 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 the scrambling in there would work. But if someone's just scraping the audio separately, does any of that whether it's watermarking or data manipulation, does any of that make it through? Or is this just a tool to specifically protect you from bots as they exist today, scraping only the source file that the audio was recorded? And at what point do you go, does this does this work? Is this, you know, pointing a video camera at the theater screen to thwart copy protection? Yeah, I feel like the this question of as they exist today is really the the ultimate knockdown for a lot of these techniques, because yeah, I mean, you're you're always 
racing against implicitly like the next generation of system. And I, I feel like that's just losing battle. But yeah, I will say, I think um, these uh, kinds of things are useful just for making the barrier or the difficulty of achieving whatever you want to achieve harder. So if you're just a malicious actor that wants to download my YouTube video, get the audio from the YouTube video and use a commercial tool to synthesize me saying some very bad things I wouldn't really say, uh, this probably works for the current state of that commercial tool. And a commercial company has no real incentive to make it not work, unlike malicious actors that have their own software so and i do think uh it's it's good to have uh some protection right although of course it's always a race between the malicious actors and the kind of defense techniques i also think that in the future we all have to assume that we're all going to be deep faked all the time and that's a really dystopian life to live but if you are famous going forward you have to assume that there will be people deep faking you and that will become something that fans of famous people will also understand. And we're, it's like, you know, it's the post-truth world, which is a kind of a weird way to think of humanity. But we're in this place now where 10 years from now, if somebody's famous, you're just not going to be able to trust media of what they say. And then you're going to have to have some way to understand this is the actual person doing what they're doing. And that is a weird world that we're entering, but it's what's coming. Kind of have that today, right? I mean, so many people still think birds are a real thing. And, uh, <laughs> Don't make me swat at them again. Don't make me. They're powered from fluoride. <laughs> and on to research and advancements. Our first story is Orca 2, teaching small language models how to reason, coming out of Microsoft. And yeah, this is a smaller language models uh, that can reason very well. It uh, surpasses models of similar size and performs as well as models five to 10 times larger on complex reasoning tasks. They have it uh, into different sizes, 7 billion and 13 billion. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the highlight uh, as we've seen these smaller models of 7 billion, 13 billion have been getting better and better pretty rapidly, even to a point that for many applications and use cases, you don't need a GPT-4, you don't need a GPT-3.5. You can go with something that is open like Llama 2 or now there's uh, Orca 2 and uh, it will solve your problem just fine for many things like you know, even, even sometimes math questions or general knowledge questions. Um, so cool to see us making language models that are actually usable by smaller players better and better. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the key breakthroughs here, it seems to be the the training data that they're using, um, like they're fine-tuning essentially Llama 2 on synthetic data. And specifically, the way the synthetic data is set up, it's kind of interesting. I haven't seen this before. Um, so there are a bunch of different kinds of strategies you can get LLMs to pursue to perform better. One of them is known as chain of thought prompting. So you just add the little this little suffix to your prompt. You say, let's think about this step by step. And this induces the model to like reason explicitly. And because it's an autocomplete system of a kind, as it reasons explicitly, it kind of guides itself, kind of constrains its reasoning in a more rational way and tends to perform better. But there are other strategies that work better too, uh, including strategies that end up using uh, third-party tools or 
doing cycles of reasoning, generating, critiquing, then regenerating. So depending on your problem, it's not always obvious which strategy is going to be the best one, which prompt you should use. And they're essentially creating this data set using GPT-4, uh, creating this data set to um, train this model to pick which prompting strategy it should use for this particular problem. So in a, in a way, it's kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't call it self-prompting, but it's sort of in that orbit. Um, and that seems to lead to, to much better performance. Again, part of the, I don't want to call this obvious because I never thought of it, but in retrospect, it seems obvious and it's kind of a cool little, uh, little add-on. Have we answered the question yet? And maybe this this leads us in a direction. Is synthetic data valuable? I mean, we know it's I mean it's valuable to an extent, but I just remember I feel like it was only a few weeks ago we were covering there were two schools of thought emerging and they were violently opposed. And some said synthetic data is going to lead to a snake eating its tail and the model's going to spiral and it's going to be useless because it can't hallucinate its own stuff. But now it seems like with Orca 2. It was able to do just fine. So, have we officially answered that question, or is it still an unknown? So, I would propose a hypothesis for that. Um, you you pre-train a model on fresh data, not synthetic data, GPT four. That model has a certain amount of knowledge and capability. Now, the question is, how do we mine that that model for value? The mining process can involve using synthetic data to fine tune or prompt more cleverly or whatever, that original model, but you are fundamentally limited by the amount of knowledge that has been soaked up into that uh, initial model. You can add frameworks to it, like AutoGPT, give it access to tools and things like that. Those all work. Um, but ultimately, there is an irreducible limit to how much you can do with a single model that has been pre-trained in that way. And all these tools are perhaps best seen as ways to extract more value from the model that's already been trained. Right. I think the answer is basically yes, when you're going from big model to small model. Uh, as with the story we covered in open source, similarly here, uh, because you're going down to 7B from a more powerful model, the synthetic data is useful. Probably not as useful as real human data, but it's cheap and you can produce it quickly. So it has been being used in a lot of research this past year. Uh, and yeah, in this case in particular, I think another reason why it's useful is you're basically regenerating a data set with a different composition. So now you're saying, here are these tricks we know to work, uh, as Jeremy said, telling it to reason step by step and some other these tricks. Then you tell the big model, do this trick. And then the small model, without being told to use a trick, sees the big model using a trick and learns to do it by itself to sort of figure out I should do it. So it, it generally yes, but you got to be smart about it, I guess. Like if you if you want the model's capabilities to actually grow, there's no way around. Like you have to give it new information, and that information can be encoded implicitly in like prompting strategies that you know work, like Andre said, or in giving it access to tools or whatever. But somehow there's got to be new information that actually comes in. That makes total sense. And Gavin, why have you never told me that? <laughs> Good question, Kevin. Because I was because I was an English major in college. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so just to quickly note the performance here, they have a nice you know table of results, and uh, Orca two thirteen B is roughly on par with ChatGPT. Uh, still not as good as GPT four, but 
you know, you can say very good for these more complicated tasks and much better than Llama 2 uh, at various sizes. So cool. Next story, new technique can accelerate language models by 300 times. Uh, this is research from ETH Zurich, and they propose this new technique called fast feed forward networks, which replaces traditional layers with these other layers that do conditional matrix multiplication instead of dense matrix multiplication without getting all through it. Nitty-gritty, basically you do less math and somehow still do well. Uh, this does result in this massive speed up they note. However, it is worth noting also that currently GPUs and hardware is optimized for dense matrix multiplication. So in practice, this doesn't mean that all our models be 300 times faster. It would mean that if you don't have a GPU, you have just a CPU you might be able to run models that previously wasn't possible without a GPU. Yeah, if you're if you're especially nerding out in this area, um, you might. One analogy you can make here is to switch transformers, where basically you guide the computations to just one really small subset of the neural network, and so not the entire neural network is not actually processing every input. Um, so you're effectively dramatically reducing the compute costs. Next story, DeepMind says a new multi-game AI is a step toward more general intelligence. Uh, so this is the student of games AI, and it can beat humans at chess, go at poker. Uh, it combines various things that uh, DeepMind has researched, such as tree search, self-play, and game theory to tackle this variety of games. That is not yet as good as things that are specialized for particular games like AlphaZero, but uh, like the article title says, this is progress towards more general intelligence. And yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to see that DeepMind is still on this track of working on games as they've been since you know, 2013 with Atari, the beginning of deep reinforcement learning, then was AlphaGo famously in 2016. And they've made uh, you know, many strides since. And this is, I guess, the latest one along those lines. I'm actually, I was say, like, Demis Asabas, the guy that was one of the DeepMind founders, few people know was a programmer on games way back when. In fact, a game called Black and White, which was one of my favorite games when I was a kid. Uh, Peter Molyneux's kind of God simulator. And uh, I still think video games, as somebody who grew up playing video games, still plays a lot of them, are a great testing ground. We've seen the Minecraft uh, simulators where people are trying these models within Minecraft. Um, I think it's a really interesting space because what you've got here is a controlled environment, which you have to move around in 3D worlds and possibly, you know, imagine Minecraft is a really good example because in Minecraft, you're doing a lot of the things that people do in real life. You're goal setting, you're building, you're doing all these things. And you're punching trees to yes. get raw materials to build a better pickaxe. You're worried about monsters coming and attacking you every night, just like the birds that don't exist. But ultimately, these are all things that you want safe spaces to test AI, right? And like, what better safe space than a kind of a, a limited video game environment? And as these things get bigger and bigger, it feels like the right way to start this sort of space. Yeah, it, it's also the case that the fact that the environment is digitized allows you to get really rapid feedback. So you don't have to wait to see what is the impact of what I've of the decision I've just made to get my, my feedback. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, the real world is just a game, in essence, like you can think of it that way. So well, in some sense, actually, I, uh, 
I guess to highlight the main novelty of this, it is the fact that they have a single approach that works both for perfect information games like Go, where you know everything about the current state of a game, and imperfect information games like Poker, where there's hidden information and uncertainty. So having a single algorithm uh, or technique that can do both is a pretty big step because for things like you know that worked for Poker, that was a specialized technique before, and things that worked for Go and chess, like Alpha Zero, probably wouldn't work for poker. So um, I think, yeah, it's definitely cool to see this uh, working for kind of any game, presumably. I love like Gemini is going to finally release and it's the exact same bard experience. It just can bluff at Texas Hold'em. <laughs> That's the one thing they've got. <laughs> sure. And it knows birds aren't real. Of course. That's, right. That's the new benchmark. It's like, can you tell me about birds? I think uh, Grok is probably already there. But yeah, probably. probably. Uh, to the lightning round, the first story is Gaia, a benchmark for general AI assistance. Uh, this is from Stanford, and it is a benchmark. Uh, so this is a way to evaluate uh, whether things like ChatGPT, these, these AI assistants that do what you ask of them in various domains, uh, how well they can do. There are nine tasks that cover various aspects of language understanding and reasoning. And uh, yeah, it's notable, I think, because we don't have many of these kinds of benchmarks, as we've noted uh, many times. It's pretty hard to tell how good an LLM is from existing benchmarks, because a lot of them are just on these kinds of things like solve a smart problem or say whether this tweet is sad or happy. And this is kind of moving beyond that to more complex things that are more similar to what people might want to try to evaluate ChatGPT for in practice. Yeah. One of the things that this really mirrors is uh, Yan LeCun's philosophy, so head of AI at Meta, uh, when it comes to what it's going to take to make AGI. So he looks at the way we're currently doing things where people create new benchmarks uh, that focus on tasks that are ever more challenging for humans. Um, so we say, okay, well, you did really great at the uniform bar exam, but like now, now let's give you an even harder like legal exam, things like that. And they're making the case that actually we should be focusing instead on, conce on conceptually simple tasks with easily verifiable solutions, tasks that humans can do easily, but AIs can't. And so their focus here on is on like, hey, here's a spreadsheet, like tell me what our quarterly losses or gains are. You know, there's a hard true false answer that's easy to verify. The cost of this is it takes a long time to write these, these questions because they have to be better thought through. And so the data set has 466 questions, you know, not as big as, as some of the data sets we've seen out there, but um, definitely pokes in the direction of, let's say, another, a, a slightly different direction from existing benchmarks for general purpose agents. And interestingly, if you look at the results, uh, this is a tough benchmark. So another problem with benchmarks is often we just like solve them and they're useless. Here, they have multiple levels, level one, level two, level three. And uh, even GPT-4 with plugins uh, is only able to get like 30% of level one, whereas humans can get 90% plus. So this is sort of like a tough benchmark of like, can you actually be as good as a human for general assistance? And the answer is, no. So. <laughs> will uh, we yes. run into the will we run into the issue where um you know the, the next generation of models are are trained either on this data set or or taught to perform better at the test because they want to perform on the benchmark but in actuality it's it's not it's not true what it's capable of. 
it's become pretty common to try and present results with uh, filtering. I forget there's like a special term for it. But basically, when you publish papers, people nowadays try to be like, okay, the data isn't in here. Don't worry, we didn't train on the benchmark. But it is certainly possible that in some cases that will happen. And, and there's some schmuck with a blog post, right, who's deliberately trying to screw this up for people. And like that, that won't be detected, right? Like you have to figure somewhere on the internet. And this is one of the things that they're explicitly trying to get away from with this is like, oh, we'll do a task-oriented thing. There's no way that you can show an LLM how to go to Google and check the weather. Um, so, you know, like let's let's lean on that. But I think as people publish the stack reasoning traces that their agents um, uh, use to reason their way to success, I think we're going to see a version of the same problem. So it's maybe better, but not not foolproof. Next story: language models are Super Mario absorbing abilities from homologous models as a free launch. Kind of a confusing paper title, but the general idea here is that a language model can absorb the task-specific capabilities of another language model that was trained on some other objective, perhaps, without retraining. You could do some special math trick. They have this dare technique, drop and rescale, that can basically merge the neural net weights in some smart way. And the merger contains the capabilities of both models, which is pretty notable in the sense that, well, now you can like sort of um, patch your model basically to have new capabilities that it didn't have before without doing expensive training, which is what we still do uh, all the time. Yeah, this is actually of, I would say, fundamental interest in AI safety. If you're interested in that space, like they're taking a base model, fine tuning it, and then they they look at the, the difference in the parameter values between the base model and the fine tuned model. And they call those the delta parameters. And then they realize, oh shit, we don't actually need like 99% of these delta parameters. So we can set them to zero and just keep a very small number. And now just with that small number of tweaked parameters, the new model retains that ability. Now let's train, let's fine tune on a different thing, create a new model with, with a, a different set of fine tune capabilities. Again, cut out 99% of those things. And then we're going to fuse together just a small number of the 1% that was learned for task fine tune task one and the 1% that was learned for fine tune task two, merge them together in the original model. And lo and behold, you get both capabilities in the same model. So I think a, a really interesting step forward in our ability to understand how capabilities are imbued into models at scale. And this is, Anyway, it helps with, uh, I, I think one thing that the paper doesn't touch on, it helps with catastrophic forgetting. And I think that's a, a really kind of undervalued thing where if you fine tune for two tasks, the model will tend to forget about the first, the first fine tuning. Exactly. So here you can kind of like graph them in. Yeah. Yeah. But if I may, I don't know that that's a Super Mario thing. I feel <laughs> like the large language models are more like Kirby in this instance. Sure, they're, they're inhaling yes. something. And yeah, I just don't know that the paper kind of falls apart for me at the title. And for that reason, <laughs> I'm out. The yeah. question is, can Kirby swallow more than one character at a time, right? That's a good question. That's very good. He can't, I don't think, yeah. right, Kevin? He has okay, to spit is it, it out. More like a, is it more like a Katamari Damasi at this point? And as it rolls about, it sheds off the things that are no longer important to it. You know, as I, it I really agree with you, Kevin. I think we're viewers on this paper really dropped the ball <laughs> in the feedback. That's right. <laughs> if I could give some very human feedback. <laughs> Should have been a Katamari reference. <laughs> 
And on to the policy and safety section, starting with the US, Britain, and other countries, Inc. agreements to make AI secure by design. And that's the story. This is a non-binding agreement, so not that meaningful perhaps, but uh, it does emphasize the need for companies to develop and deploy AI in a way that prioritizes safety and protects customers and the public from misuse. These guidelines include recommendations such as monitoring AI systems for abuse, protecting data, and vetting software suppliers. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, interesting to see more progress in the general space of international agreements. We've discussed the UK summit and some of the stuff that came out of that. And uh, so this is in this general trend where people are at least talking uh, a good talk in terms of wanting to be good with AI. Maybe unsurprisingly too, given the early stage of things, this is a very high level of abstraction, right? These This guidance is not like, you know, red team for like this specific thing. It's just like, hey, make sure that your software vendors are, are cleared and all that stuff. So it uh, makes sense. It's, uh, it's part of, um, I think it's output in part spearheaded by CISA, which is at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Jenny Sturdily is the kind of main person on that. Uh, she's really good in the space. And um, anyway, so good good forward movement, probably also linked somewhat to the EO, the, the executive order that came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, so cool to see DHS uh, plugging away. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard. When anything is non-binding, it's hard to know, but we're so like early in that world to kind of, I, I'm just happy that the politicians are kind of talking about this stuff in some ways. Cause when you think about AI safety, I would imagine a year ago, you know, 99% of politicians had very little that any of this was going on. And, you know, we, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is on the list, but like you've got Palmer Lucky out there talking about generating entirely new AI autonomous weapons. And like, they should catch up pretty quickly. I feel like it's important that we get caught up pretty quickly and you know, whether it's non-binding or not, I'm just happy they're talking about it. And there were 18 uh, signatories on this. So, you know, pretty significant, not everyone, but uh, it did have the US, Britain, a decent chunk of Europe and some countries like Australia and Israel and Singapore. And on to the landing round, not too many policy stories this week. Uh, the first story is Chinese GPU recycling factories have a workaround for the US government's newly imposed export rules and uh, can, I guess, cheat, right? So as we've covered, the export rules for GPUs from the US have gotten even stricter, have closed some major loopholes that have made it possible for NVIDIA to have a pretty similar chip that was China-specific for a while. And so now these Chinese uh, graphics card recycling factories are dismantling GeForce RTX 490's gaming cards and repurposing them into AI accelerators to bypass the export rules. Uh, and that led to the price of those cards skyrocketing. So another kind of uh, unexpected, but uh, I guess significant uh, outcome of all this uh, policy stuff. Yeah, and giving gamers yet another reason say. to hate a brand new technology. Well, I mean, gamers, gamers hated crypto. <laughs> they hated crypto and blockchain for a myriad reasons, but mostly because they couldn't get hands on cheap graphics cards. And now they're going to hate AI for the exact same reason here. That I, I never thought about. Yeah, the plight of the poor gamer in this whole mm -hmm. international geopolitical battle for <laughs> world dominance. Yeah, the, the 
uh, understated the. I just want uh, yeah. sixty frames per second of Red Dead Redemption Two. That's all I need. I don't exactly. care about AI. <laughs> I need 8K cyberpunk. I don't care about your artificial super intelligence. I, you know, medical breakthroughs and, uh, and and zero gravity. Yeah, whatever. I need more frames in Modern Warfare 3. Now, I, I will say from a more serious perspective, because that's what we're here for, folks. Um, <laughs> wow. Is, Damn. <laughs> yeah, Why Gavin? did we write these clouds? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Gavin. Put your big red nose away and get sincere. So like I was saying... Um, the what's what's going on here is that the, the the one of the key metrics that they're trying to to optimize for these, these GeForce RTX GPUs, right? They have a lot of horsepower, but it's sort of diffuse on the on the the on the card. So what they're trying to get is like an, a higher chip density, a higher compute density on on the silicon. So that's really what's happening is they're they're taking the compute components out of these things, and then they're trying to put them on a new board basically to like increase the density so they can be used for AI workloads. Um, that's why there's a, a compute density threshold in the US export controls. And that is the specific threshold that's being kind of circumvented here. So um, sorry, there's there's no joke there. That's just that's just <laughs> <laughs> And there doesn't need to be. That's our problem. <laughs> that's always our problem. <laughs> and speaking of not needing a joke, next we have a kind of a policy statement rather than a news story per se. There was a group of German and international AI experts that uh, urged the German federal government to support the inclusion of comprehensive foundation model regulation in the EU AI Act. So this is a letter of concern that is titled the EU AI Act needs foundation model regulation. As we mentioned last week, there was a move by several countries to basically weaken that. And the EU AI Act, which is a huge deal in terms of regulating AI for safety and uh, things like that, might be in peril, is at least kind of at a stalemate because of discussions around uh, policies uh, with foundation models. Uh, and um, yeah, I guess uh, people are concerned that maybe that'll just be cut out. And this is really signed by the the sort of usual suspects on AI safety: Jeff Hinton, Joshua Bengio, Stuart Russell, and so on. The main argument is that uh, so so the argument that that they're complaining about is coming from some some quarters of the EU saying, look, we need to regulate at the application layer, not at the layer of the foundation models themselves. Don't don't regulate or legislate about the gun. Regulate about the person using the gun. In this case, you know the end application. Um, this, I think, for technical reasons, is frankly, I think it's kind of an ill-structured way of going. Like it doesn't make any sense because the foundation model can empower so many end applications. Like, what are you going to regulate? Like every single possible end use of these things, including the ones we haven't even thought of, which open source developers are going to like. This is insane. Um, not to put my cards on the table too much here, but there, there's just like as they put it, you know. It, Small and medium-sized companies, quote, cannot afford liability risks and excessive compliance costs stemming from a potentially unsafe foundation model they use for their product. There's no possible way, as a small startup, just experimenting with some new thing that you have the capacity to be held liable for this sort of thing. So anyway, from a safety perspective, I think also just foundation models themselves are a source of alignment risk. And you basically are making a bet that there's not going to be any alignment risk if you are not going to regulate those models themselves, which you can make, but you ought to kind of put that assumption explicitly on the table. And uh, yeah, in this uh, pretty brief letter, you can read it, we link to it as usual. They uh, pretty much are addressing this recent move by Germany and some other countries 
kind of arguing that there should be self-regulation when it comes to these technologies. And this pretty much says explicitly uh, self-regulation is probably not enough for foundation model safety and you should you know, actually push for it as opposed to push against it. Next story, more than half of Americans are worried about AI, uh, are more worried about AI than excited. So 52% of Americans are more concerned than excited about the role of AI in everyday life, while only 10% are more excited than uh, concerned. As you might expect, Americans support AI for routine tasks like products and services, but uh, do fear that it may harm human relationships and uh, cause job losses and be used for surveillance and stuff like that. Um, yeah, actually, I'm not too sure. I might be part of that 52%. It's, it's getting harder and harder to be you know, more excited and concerned in some ways. I mean, then again, uh, Claude 2 is 4% less likely to kidnap and kill your mother now. So, uh, you know, which way does it... I mean, they haven't heard the news yet, so once they do. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, we, when we first started AI for Humans, we had a running bit of like the doomsday clock and where are you at and what percentage do you think we're going to be paper clipped? And we dropped it by episode three because as much fun as we were having with it, the more and more we got into things, it very quickly became, oh yeah, there, there is a, yeah, it's fun for role play, but this could be, this could be a real big issue. Disinformation, misinformation, the paperclip issue. It, it started to get really serious. I still err on the side of excitement. Uh, I'm, I'm less worried than I am excited. And I do wonder is like, I mean, it's pure research, but is this, you know, is, is the sample of respondents, those who still answered their rotary phone to give their opinion on AI? <laughs> yeah. Was this like a Facebook meta only study? I'm curious. This is a survey by the Pew Research Center. So it's it's hard to say. Uh, it doesn't list here very exact techniques. Uh, it could be that this is maybe what I would guess is I think if we look at the general populace, right? Just like everyone across the board, my Perception is most people are maybe not even that uh, familiar with AI. It's it's kind of surprising to me personally, but I do ask people, oh, have you played around with ChatGPT? And a lot of people still haven't really. Like they're kind of yeah. aware of it, but they don't understand it deeply. And I think, you know, they keep hearing about it, but they don't personally interact with it. So I could see how for maybe you know, 50% of Americans, they don't understand it too well and would be, I guess, as a result, more on a concern front. It's could be, could be bad. Well, we, it's funny you say that because this week on our show, we have, in fact, the same episode that y'all are beyond, uh, we have Xavier Wood slash Austin Creed, the WWE wrestler. He's our guest on this show. And like, we have people uh, on from like kind of the mainstream world or just in general to talk about AI, but he came on and he's a super technical interest. He plays a ton of games, but hadn't done a lot of stuff with AI. And it was interesting to think what well, sometimes when you're in this bubble, it feels like everybody is aware of AI in general. And you think a hundred million weekly users of ChatGPT, of course everybody but then you realize that's 7.9 billion people in the world who are not weekly users of ChatGPT, and maybe 7 billion of the 8 billion people on the planet have never even used ai tools so this is like kind of this early stage and you start to think about 
this is going to be a narrative too, right? It's like, what is the narrative that's being told? Is the narrative that's being told we have to be worried about AI because of this or this? Or is the narrative that's going to be told, hey, AI can be really beneficial and could make life really good? That narrative is going to really drive how the majority of people see AI going forward. And I think that's what I'm interested in with studies like this is like, kind of almost like what narrative is winning right now? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the why not both narrative too, uh, which yeah. is what we're getting from OpenAI. And, and it'll be an interesting question to see if the general public can keep two thoughts in their heads at the same time. Yeah. And in the survey, 36% are equally concerned and excited, which is probably roughly where I am personally, just because there's a lot of things to be concerned about, but also excited about. And one last story for the section, State Department prioritizes AI-ready workforce in its first AI strategy. So the U.S. State Department has released its first enterprise AI strategy and has prioritized the development of an AI-ready workforce. Uh, so it uh, is aiming to maximize the impact of the department's uh, uh employees by using AI tools to turn data into diplomatic insights. I think this is primarily interesting in the sense that we've been discussing quite a bit of stuff coming out of the uh, Biden administration. And so coming out of the State Department, we see, again, pretty significant awareness and kind of consideration of AI going on at a lot of levels in the executive branch uh, and, and throughout the US government in general. Yeah, I will say the State Department uh, internally is really uniquely informed uh, on on the range of, especially the the risk side. Um, I've been super impressed. So, like, I'm I'm sure, uh, and I believe that all the way up to Blinken himself, like, there's an awareness of of the full landscape, uh, like we've been talking about. You know, the two sides of the coin, and and so seeing this push, this comes out of the executive order. So they're really being mandated to do this. Um, but uh, I suspect it's being done with some gusto, just given that uh, internally they they really do believe in this too. And Gavin, Kevin, I think as Americans, I think it, it has been a little heartwarming to see the administration being very uh, intelligent, I would even dare say, with regards to AI, like very on, on top of it in the past year. I've, I've been pretty impressed in general that like they're taking it seriously. Weirdly, like the person that I keep coming back to that I think was kind of raising their hand pretty early on this was Chuck Schumer. And Chuck Schumer is somebody that probably doesn't get enough credit for kind of like making this a bigger deal. And uh, But anyway, I, yeah, I think so. I think this is, I mean, again, AI safety, you probably can't underestimate how important it is when we think about this overarching thing. And, and the government should be looking at this stuff. And on to our last section, synthetic media and art, with just one more story. The story is Sarah Silverman hits stumbling block in AI copyright infringement lawsuit against Meta. So that's a story, one of the many, many lawsuits going on uh, around AI and copyright was this lawsuit led by Sarah Silverman against Meta. And the judge in this case denied the claim that Meta's AI system is an infringing derivative work of the plaintiff's book, of Sarah Silverman's book. The argument was that every output produced by Meta's AI tool constitutes copyright infringement. That was also dismissed. And this follows uh, on the lines of a similar decision we covered previously about AI art generators and how those models are infringing. So still, you know, 
dozen, dozens of lawsuits going on, but early results here seem to be moving in favor of the companies uh, providing these tools. And the reasoning is really interesting here, right? So they have this quote from the, the, the judge in the case, and he says, to prevail on a theory that Llama's outputs constitute derivative infringement, which is what was alleged here, the plaintiffs would need to allege and ultimately prove that the outputs, quotes, incorporate some form uh, in some form, a portion of the plaintiff's books. So basically, you, you got to show that the work has some similarity to the original work, like that the outputs look similar. It's not enough for the vibe to be this. And, and now we're kind of like haggling over price here. It's this messy middle ground where it's like how similar to the book, but we're getting some indication that it's not enough to certainly capture like just the high level vibe to, to do an impression of Sarah Silverman. You have to maybe... It's unclear. I mean, capture some of her her phrases or something more like that. I actually uh, worked with Sarah for a while. I produced a show that she did on Hulu a couple years ago, and and Sarah's incredibly talented and, and incredibly smart. And her book is very good. You should read it. Bedwetter. It's really good. But I think the hardest thing here, and Kevin and I have talked a lot about this in our show, is. It's difficult sometimes for creatives to understand what's going on with AI models because I think when they hear this this model is sucked all this stuff in and it's using my words to make this next thing, the hardest thing, and this is the thing I keep coming back to, is like that's kind of what artists have done forever. And I know this sounds crappy and shitty to people because they're like, these big tech companies, they make all this money off of us, but artists forever have taken material in and exported something else, right? And that sounds very mechanical, but it really is the way that art has worked. Like, you know, Banksy has, no matter what, has had like other people that have informed his art and he has used pieces of it. And it's, as we've seen with Microsoft saying they will cover the legal bills of people who uh, who have co-pilot lawsuits against them, I really think there is no legal way that any of these lawsuits are going to work, these copyright lawsuits. It just doesn't feel possible. That said, we do have to think about these people whose material was taken for these models because there's a lot of it and that wasn't necessarily okay in the first place to do. Nobody said, yes, you can have my stuff. So it's such a complicated question, but from a legal perspective, I don't think any of these are going to work, which I think that the artists might be disappointed in. I also say, as with the image copyright case, uh, it could also be the case that it is partially about the argument being made. So here, the argument heavily based on this notion that it is producing derivative works, and they argued that the model is doing that because it cannot function without the information from the work. But then in the actual, uh, I guess, uh, you know, document, the judge said that uh, this doesn't seem to make sense because to define a derivative work is something that is uh, recast, transformed, or adopted from that work. So there is a, a lot of subtleties here in terms of like, okay, is it legal to train on the data if it's copyrighted? Or another question is, is the work that it produces derivative? Uh, and there may be different legal arguments there. So I do think there might be, this may not necessarily mean that other cases will fail, but it does indicate that it's probably more likely. And with that, we are done with this episode of Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here and more at lastweekin.ai. Thank you, uh, Kevin and Gavin, for being guest co-hosts. It was a ton of fun. 
That was great. I appreciate it. Yeah, you can find us at AI for Humans, by the way. We're on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts, all those places. We do a video as well, an audio show. But I had a blast. Thank you for, for joining us. And, and sorry, thank you for letting us join you. And then thank you for joining us because we will see you on our show this week as well, where the two of you are going to join us to discuss the news. So uh, it's a crossover episode. It, it's been a pleasure uh, being demonetized with you guys. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait till you come and join us at our house. It's very messy. <laughs> yes. So please do check them out. Uh, at least one episode that me and Jeremy will be on coming out soon. <laughs> and as always, we do appreciate it if you share the podcast to make us more famous and if you give us five stars to make us feel good. But all that aside, what we really care about is that people listen and benefit from it so thank you for listening and please do keep tuning in